And we turn our attention to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. And as we started our study last week in this chapter, we started looking at the historical context of John's writing. And what I pointed out to you is that the natural mind is drawn to an impersonal deity. Man doesn't resist God. He resists the God of the Bible. The natural man would rather have a God who is distant, who is far away, a God who is off somewhere else, not near, rather than a personal God, a God who is close. He'd rather have a God who sets creation in motion and then steps back not to be influenced rather than to have a God that comes and is near and intimate. Man struggles with this very idea of God, idea of God being personal, a God who brings conviction. And John comes and confronts that message right here in the opening message of 1 John. He reminds us of God's coming, that God is, brings His message, that God is eternal. He is the one who is from the beginning. God has been seen and heard and touched. He has, been, and he has given a message that is communicated to us. Eternal God who is far has been has come near to us and has communicated. It's interesting that just this week the Washington Post wrote an article and in that article they identified a group that they called the non-religious who identified themselves as non-religious. In the opening paragraph the article says this, over the past half century as the number of Americans with no religious affiliation has gone from 5% to nearly 30%, the emphasis has been often on what they were leaving. A report released Wednesday on the nons finds that they are diverse, young, left-leaning, and may offer clues of the future of making meaning in a secularized country. The article goes on and describes this group, describes that from the 1970s, you had 5% of Americans who would say they had no religious affiliation. Now today, you have over 30% identifying themselves in this particular group. And they are demonstrating that they're moving away from the living God. In the article, the article goes on and and interviews those who landed within this group of 30%, and and it says this, Of that 30% of individuals, 56% of them say they believe in some higher power, but not the God of the Bible. So that they have, again, a willingness to accept some being, some God out there. They just do not want what the Scriptures say. As I pointed out, again, the natural man does not necessarily reject the existence of God. He sees the value in religion. He identifies that value. The article goes on to say, the overwhelming majority of the nons say religion causes division and intolerance and encourages superstition and illogical thinking. But 58% also say religion helps society by giving people meaning and purpose. 
As this article goes back and forth, it shows that these non-religions or non-religious people see the value and the purpose of it, understand that there is some being out there, they just don't see a place for themselves in religion. Again, man in his natural state, because he is created in the image of God, created to be a worshiper of God, can look around at creation and see the majesty of God around, created to be in fellowship with God and to commune as a natural worshiper, cannot separate himself from what he has been created to be, even if now he does not want what God has said about himself. I say all of that because when John comes, he came writing a message confronting that kind of ideology, that kind of group, the kind of group that wanted God distant, wanted him far out there, wanted him separated, wanted him quiet, wanted him powerful, full of glory, but not near, personal, intimate, challenging. And John comes in and says quite the opposite. Here is God. He has drawn near to us the eternal God, the one who is from the beginning, and he has been seen, heard, and touched, and he has communicated a message to us, and that message we come proclaiming to you. That's where John draws our attention. We can come into fellowship with the living God. And he here gives us, in this text, what brings us together? What, what makes us unified in this text? He draws our attention to, to fellowship with God. In fact, he describes what this unity is here, and he describes our fellowship. The word fellowship used in this text, koinonia, is used 19 times in the New Testament. Nineteen times this phrase koinonia or fellowship is used, and it's used four times here in John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. Twice you see it in verse 3. Notice in verse 3 as he says, there so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. We have fellowship, we have unity with, we are united to. Jump down to verse 6 and verse 7 as well. He states it again. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have koinonia, fellowship. Verse 7. Again, or that was verse 7. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. Fellowship here is more than socializing. It's more than just having a good time talking about something. It is more than uh, shared common commitments or more than a shared heritage or background. It's more than what can be produced on an individual human level. This fellowship here is unity with God. John Stott describes it like this. He says, Fellowship is not merely a coming together. Men come together in battlefields to kill everyone, in gambling dens to rob everyone, on political platforms to oppose everyone. Fellowship is experienced by those who come together to experience a common faith, a common purpose, and joy. 
There's a unity here that John is describing, a unity with God. Back in, again, verse 3, to, so that you too may have fellowship or unity with us, and indeed our fellowship or unity is with the Father, that you might be united with. So that John is concerned about this purpose, to call man out of the, uh, his natural existence that would keep God far away, and to call man into communion with God, through fellowship with God. And not just man who is being called into fellowship with God, but in particular man and his fellow believers called into communion with God to interact with him. We have this shared experience together. It's a unity that starts with God who came into our world and communicated with us and given, has given us his message. So our fellowship, again, is around doctrine. Our fellowship, again, is around ideology. Our fellowship is around faith. Our fellowship is around the knowledge of God. But this fellowship, as we have it, is incomplete. It is still growing. This fellowship, even now, is being strengthened. It is growing as we are coming to a knowledge of the message of God and as we are communicating that very message. It's a fellowship that is still in development as we are protecting the unity of the faith and as we are working at communicating effectively sound doctrine and as we are understanding the living God. I might describe it in the very words that Spurgeon used. Spurgeon described the, the, his idea of, of the building unity and the various stages that it's at like this. He said, I saw a large building the other day being erected. I do not know that it was any business of mine, but I did puzzle myself to make out how it would make a complete structure. It seemed to me that the gables would come in so very awkwardly, but I dare say if I had seen a plan, there might have been some central tower or some combination by which the wings, one of which appeared to be rather longer than the other, might have been brought into harmony. For the architect, doubtless, had a unity in his mind that I did not have in my mind. So you and I do not have the necessary information as to what the church is to be. The unity of the church is not to be seen by you today, and do not think it. The plan is not worked out yet. God is building over there, and you only see the foundation. And in another part, the top stone is all but ready, and you cannot comprehend it. Shall the master show you his plan? Is the divine architect bound to take you into his studio to show you all his secret motives and designs? Not so. Wait a while, and you will find that all these diversities and differences among spiritually minded men, when the master plan comes to be wrought out, are different parts of the grand whole. And you will, you also will be astonished, and you will know that God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ. See, John brings this message 
communicates his message to his audience as he's drawing people into fellowship and into unity with God, the church is being built. And we don't see all the parts in its full fullness, certainly Spurgeon hadn't seen all the parts by his time. We don't see all of the particular parts by our time. The Lord is working on his particular timeline as the church is building. But what we do know is this fundamentally. All of those who have embraced the message, who have received the message, embraced it, are those who are being brought into fellowship with God and fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with the apostles. So the gospel then becomes the kind of rallying point for us of the message of unity, the message of fellowship, the message of communion with God. And John brings it to us in such a way as to give us assurance and to build us up. He speaks out of personal testimony. He speaks out of a, a personal interaction with the living God so that he can be a kind of authoritative eyewitness to that very message that he has received. God came. God dwelt among us. God gave us this message. And it is, in, again, verse 3, it is this message that we've heard we proclaim to you. That very message that has been spoken into our ears is this message which we are speaking out and making known to you. And it is this message that is our rallying point, our unifying work. So what we've seen then in that first part is the message of our fellowship. But what we turn to from now, from verse 5 and following, we turn next to the messengers or the members in fellowship. Who is part of this fellowship? And here John describes verse 5 and 6 as this. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Who makes up this fellowship? Who's involved in it? Well, first and the greatest member involved in this fellowship is God himself. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you. God is light in, there. in him. There's no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him, he is in this membership, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. Again, here, John raises the bar. If you want entrance into this fellowship, if you want entrance into this communion, this, this message, the entrance, you should understand who is in this fellowship. The one who is in this fellowship is God, very God, the Holy One. It is interesting, thinking about the, how people treat, again, the concept or idea of fellowship today. So diminishing the idea of fellowship, making it just like a grand social event. Hey, we like to talk with each other. We like to engage. We can have great conversations. So we're fellowshipping. We're having a great time playing games and great time talking with one another and a great time engaging one another. This is fellowship. 
We enjoy one another. We enjoy the same hobbies. We enjoy the same activities. We enjoy the same foods. We enjoy the same customs. We enjoy the same life experiences. We're going through the same trials together. This is fellowship. It's not fellowship. Not the biblical description of fellowship. Yeah, you might be gathering together. But understand this, that koinonia, fellowship, is more than proximity together. It's more than we are in the same proximity with one another. I'm glad you're here, certainly, but there's more to our fellowship than our being around one another. It's our unity in God, our unity in the gospel. It is... As John is mentioning here, it's our unity in the message that we have received from God. This is koinonia. This is fellowship. What John is establishing here, again, he's establishing how God's message brings us together, but I wanted to point out that this main individual who is in this fellowship is God himself. John is announcing the gospel message to draw people into fellowship with God. That's what he says as he starts out in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. And again, I think about this for a moment. God has been silent up to this point for hundreds of years. After the, the Old Testament, between the Old Testament period and the New Testament, God was silent 400 years to be exact. 400 years the God is not communicating, not sending a prophet, not speaking from heaven, not giving new revelation, not communicating anything new to his people. Much like today, imagine even now, today, nearly 2,000 years, God has been silent. No new revelation. He is not inactive, but He is silent. Quiet. When God goes quiet, when He's no longer sending a prophet, when He's no longer giving new revelation, He's no longer communicating new insight, what exactly would you expect Him to say when He starts speaking? When he opens up his mouth again and he communicates once again his presence, what message would you expect God to come with at that moment? John gives us that right here. This is the message we heard from him and announced to you. God who was quiet, God who had not spoken, has now spoken And now here's what he reveals. And what does he reveal right out of the gate? He reveals this phrase, God is light. What is this particular phrase, God is light? Some have wanted to soften the edge of this phrase particularly. They've wanted to say something like this. Well, light is in reference to salvation. For example, Psalm 27 in verse 1 says, David, it's a Psalm of David, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Light there is a a light to the path of salvation. Some have concluded that 1 John 5 and verse 1, then God, or verse 5, is God is light means that God casts a light as to the way of salvation. Psalm 39, or 36 and verse 9, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we see light. You, God, are the path. You give us direction. You give us clarity as to the direction of salvation. John chapter 1 and verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So some will conclude this light means simply that God is giving revelation to the path of salvation. As Jesus said in John chapter 9 and verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm here pointing the path to salvation. Another possible meaning to light is this. Some have say that it is God's garments. That God, it is a, a term used to reflect God's glory. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16 says this, who God, speaking of God, who alone possesses immor- immortality, or yeah, immortality, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. What is light in that context? Light is then God's glory, God's God dwelling in light. So, some have concluded, we have fellowship with God because in Him is the path of salvation, or in Him is then His glory and the revealing of His glory. Or the third uh, possible idea is that light could literally refer to illumination. That is actual light brought in, just as the sun brings out light. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19 says that we are no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness will, will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. This is light used as illumination. The question is then, which one of these ideas is it? Is it God is giving illumination? God is giving direction to salvation? Or God as standing in his glory? What does this phrase mean? And all you have to do is look exactly at the context and you see exactly what it means. It means none of those things. Those other contexts may rightly conclude those possible meanings, but not this context. Notice clearly, verse 5 and 6. That God is light, in him is, there is no darkness at all. So this might be illumination, but notice verse 6, it clarifies it for us exactly. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Immediately here, what John distinguishes for us is that light refers to holiness. John clearly reveals to us the moral significance in light and darkness. Light is obedience and righteousness, while darkness is disobedience and unrighteousness. So now go back to this phrase here in verse 5 and think about this again for a moment. This is the message, John says. 
that we have heard from him. God who has been silent, God who has not spoken, the very first thing that God says as he comes out and speaks and says, I am holy. I'm light. I'm perfect. I am without fault. So perfect, so righteous, so holy, set apart from all corruption. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, that absolutely is terrifying to me. Like all the messages that I would like God to start with, holiness, perfect light, is not exactly the starting point that I particularly would be most comforted by. Certainly rejoice in it now because I understand the gospel, but as one separated from the gospel, that would not be the most enjoyable message. I can get behind mercy. If God had started from the starting point of not communicating for thousands of years and then came out and said, I'm merciful. I can relate to that, God. Great. I need that mercy. I understand the need for mercy. I can run up to mercy and embrace that message right out of the gate because I have recognized I have fallen short and in need of mercy. And so a God who comes out of the gate and says, I am merciful is a God that can be embraced easily. Or if God had come out and said, I speak truth. Everything I speak is accurate. Everything I speak is truthful. Again, I can relate to that and appreciate that message as well because certainly I want to know truth. I want to understand what is truthful and right and good and I can certainly rejoice in turning to a God who speaks truth and will not mislead. I mean, God is, with His infinite knowledge, speaking perfect wisdom and truth. It's a joy to turn to that kind of God. Or even God who would say, I'm justice. Great, we need a lot of justice today. There is corruption all around. We love a God who's filled with justice, who will come and and judge the wicked and come and bring order and call out the unrighteous. If that was his opening message, again, that would be joyful because the wicked need to be punished and those who have received ill-gotten gain need to be brought into account. Again, that message would be easily embraced. Certainly God stating that he'd be all-powerful would be a uh, message that one could get behind because God being all-powerful is a God that we can also rejoice in because then we can see God bring about the justice and everything else that we think man needs. Or, maybe lastly, one might expect If God has been silent for so long, if he hasn't spoken for so long, if he has kept his message back from people for so long, maybe he would come back and give the message of love. I am love. You've left us alone for a while. We've messed everything up. So God, what we need to hear from you right now is that you are love that you will come and bring us to yourself and you will receive us as a father receives his own children. In receiving us, you will also then uh, bring us near to you. 
All of those messages, again, would be easy to receive and draw near to God. But that's not John's starting point here. John reminds us, again, that God is light. He's holy. He's absolutely righteous. And in Him, there's no darkness at all. No flaw. No sign of weakness. No sign of of wickedness in any way. God is in this fellowship then. The one who dwells in this fellowship is the one who is perfect in all of his ways. This is John's gospel message as a starting point. Those who come to embrace the message of Christianity embrace as a starting point a God who is perfect. A God who is without sin. A God who is holy. A God who is righteous in all of his dealings. A God who is, again, unwavering light. And as John says, as to drive home, he, he separates those who do not belong in this mix. He says in verse 6, If we say we have koinonia, or fellowship with him, that we have unity with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We are not in communion with God if we are walking in darkness. John is this, says here's the first and foremost member of this exclusive group. It is holy God, the most holy one. And as I said, out of all the messages to start with, that is the most terrifying for me. Because I know my own limitations, and I know you know your own limitations. I know we are intimately aware with our, of our own failures and our, how we fall short of that. That's why I appreciate where John goes about reconciliation next and confession and then the work of Christ. But before we get to that message, let's just keep our focus on who this member is in this fellowship. So that is whatever is coming into fellowship, if anything is going to have fellowship with the living God, you must understand that He, Holy God, is the first and foremost, the greatest member in this unity in this fellowship together. And to me, again, it's no surprise that God starts here. It's no surprise because, again, God sets himself apart from the wickedness in the world and sets himself apart. But it's also interesting that John himself, back in verse 3, acknowledges that he is part of this communion with God. Again, we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you so that you too may have fellowship, notice, with us. Meaning, not just with God and Christ who have come and given us this message, but with us, the fellow messengers who are proclaiming it. And that indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And again, I love verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. The Apostle Paul, Apostle John, 
The rest of the apostles, as they are writing and ministering and communicating the gospel, they are communicating this gospel with joy, calling people into fellowship with the living God. Which members are in this work? Well, the first and most prominent member is God himself. The other members are the apostles and messengers of the gospel. And then, by implication, all of us who believe this gospel. We are the members with the most prominent member, God himself. And again, think about that for a moment. What impact should that have for the church? To be able to say something like this? I mean, is it, when does this be kind of a profound way to describe the church? Welcome to Saving Grace Bible Church. We are in fellowship with God here, and the most prominent member in our ministry is God himself, the holy God, the righteous God. And this is exactly what Paul describes of the church in Ephesians chapter 2, that the church is the temple of God being built up into a holy dwelling. God dwells among his people. He dwells in his church. And he dwells again as the first and foremost prominent member, but he has called to himself messengers. The apostles have come and proclaimed, and then he's called to the church uh, various members who have believed the gospel. All of these are part of his glorious fellowship, his koinonia. I'm overwhelmed by this because because of the scripture's description of God. Let me just, as we kind of conclude in the last few moments we have, so we have a couple minutes left, I just want to remind you of what the Bible says about God himself. To remember that if the, most, the first and foremost prominent member in fellowship is God himself, again, what does God reveal about himself? Let me take you to a few passages. Let's start by heading to, you can head to Isaiah 6. But let me read for you as you head to Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 23. You have Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 36, 23 says this. It says, I will vindicate the holiness of my, na- my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Ezekiel, the God is saying, look, Israel, I'm going to come. I'm going to bring judgment. I am going to demonstrate in your midst that I am holy. And I'm going to prove to everyone else through you that myself to be holy in your sight. You read through the prophets, you read through the anticipation. Daniel anticipates the ministry that God is going to have among Israel, and as he laid out the prophetic timeline in Daniel chapter 9 and following, you understand that God's purpose is to bring an end to Israel's rebellion, is to make a satisfaction for sin, it is to set up God's kingdom and set up Christ's rule. God has a purpose that he's going to demonstrate his holiness. Now here in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, 
We get a glimpse from Isaiah's standpoint into the most holy God. And from Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, here's what he says. That in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's great calling to ministry heads into the throne room of God. Described in this throne room are angels who are ministering to the Most High God. And they are crying out in this throne room, Holy, Holy, Holy. Regularly acknowledging the greatness of God and His otherness and separation from the rest of creation. And then all of the signs around, the trembling foundations, the smoke filling out, etc. Obviously, Isaiah himself overwhelmed by this great demonstration of God's rich glory. Speaking of the angels, covering their eyes, not even to look upon God, covering their feet, not to stand on holy ground, hovering above, crying out in their voice, speaking of the greatness of God. And you think maybe that that message would run out. Turn over to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. And from John's vantage point, we get to see the throne room again. Starting in John in Revelation chapter four, it says this, starting in verse five, out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature like a face that had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, notice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Night and day, these beings in the presence of heaven crying out to God, the thrice holy, 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 holy. Take all that, say, come back to First John Chapter 1, then. 
You have the Old Testament prophets pointing to God's jealousy for his glory, desiring to vindicate his name in Israel that his glory would be manifest. You have the Old Testament prophets looking up into the imagery of of the throne room of heaven and seeing in that throne room the angels crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. You have the revelation account of looking forward to future events where in that event God again is still in his throne and the creatures are crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. So that when John comes here in 1 John 1 and speaks of fellowship with God, He speaks by starting at that very point. God is holy. He's set apart. He is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. When we embrace the gospel, when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe upon him that in his life laid down on our behalf and our sins credited to his account and he took upon himself our wrath, wrath deserved for us that the Father pours out upon him and then God takes his righteousness and credits it to our account. When we are justified in Christ Jesus, we are justified by God to join in communion with the Holy God, to be brought out of darkness, to be brought out of slavery to sin, to be brought out of corruption, to be brought out of the wickedness of this world, to be brought into communion with God because he's light. That's what he desires for his people, to bring transformation. And now at this particular point, the most obvious question comes. It's the one that causes all of our fear. But I'm not holy. I, I'm not perfect. I, I fail on a regular basis. I try, but then I find myself giving in to wickedness. I find myself falling short. I find myself having transgressed. Well, good news. Because verse 8 and 9 says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So I'm glad you're acknowledging your sin. You ought to not acknowledge your sin. Because if you're not, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the glorious message. God who comes, who is holy, who is perfect light, who has no darkness within him, comes to call us out of the darkness into fellowship with him, and there is fellowship with God through Christ. John, in this message, again, so radically different. In In a time period when he's writing where, again, the Greeks were viewing deities and rejoicing in various gods, just a God who is far away, saying, come, you can actually draw near to God and have fellowship with him. And I say, friends, we're in no different a time. Even as the Washington Post described, we're living in a day and age where the natural man is consumed with a view of God that's distant and far away, and we need to call people into fellowship with God. 
call people to draw near to this one who is in perfect light. To join in fellowship with us as they come in confession of faith and turn themselves over and believe God's message of repentance and faith. When we come back next week, we'll pick up on this message and say, all right, then how do we have fellowship with God? And we will see, as John describes, how we come into fellowship with God. But what we know at this point is this. God has given us his message. He hasn't remained silent. He hasn't pulled away. He's come, given us a message. And he has established his communion with us. His communion, the holy God, the righteous God, communes with us. We have fellowship with him when we embrace the gospel. How do we have that fellowship? Well, that we will answer next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths, these ideas, or indeed our own natural inclinations. If you left us to ourselves, we would pull away, keep you distant, be too terrified to draw near to you because you are too holy, too perfect. You dwell in unapproachable light. Indeed, we recognize that even as we move out of the darkness into your light, we become aware of our own corruption, aware of how we fall short. But we rejoice because there are those already in fellowship with you. There were the apostles who first saw and held and touched and received, who communicated They're messengers who proclaim the riches of the gospel of grace, those who have lived it before us, who have called us into fellowship with you. We have believed their message, believed their testimony. We anticipate, even as we continue to understand this message, that we'd understand how it is that we can have forgiveness. But we pray, Father, that as we draw nearer to you and come into your fellowship, that we do not profane your most holy name. That we do not drag it in through the mud and lower the standard and pervert the message of the gospel, but instead we come humbled, overwhelmed by the riches of your glory and entrusting ourselves to your marvelous work. And may we always have a most prominent sense, a, a, a real sense that this ministry is your ministry, your work. You dwell amongst your people. The church is holy because you dwell in it. So help us to proclaim that and have that mindset so as to, in all cases, always appreciate uh, your, our nearness with you. So thank you for this study, and thank you again for John's testimony. For it encourages and comforts our hearts because we know our weaknesses, but much more, we rejoice in your gracious promises that you've given us. So comfort us with these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.